So it's Christmas Eve, so of course we're going to talk about the Christmas story, but before we get into the Christmas story specifically, I want to sort of start in the beginning, and by the beginning I mean like the very beginning, when God creates the world. And so if you're familiar with the biblical narrative, you know that God creates the world, he creates all things, the mountains, the rivers, the land, the sea, the animals, and every day he declares that what he created is good. But sort of the finishing touches of that creation project, the climax, the pinnacle of the creation narrative is the creation of us, human beings. And when that occurs, the Bible records this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what I want to focus on is the function of human beings. Because when God creates us, when he creates humanity, he gives us a kind of job description, a role and a function in the created order. And that's to have dominion over creation. Now that's a fancy way of saying that humans are delegated authorities. God is the ultimate authority, but he creates us and delegates authority to us so that we might rule and reign and manage and govern things on earth in a good way. Remember, God is a good God who creates a good world, so he creates good human beings that ought to manage in a good way. And so when you look at a human being, you are supposed to see them reflecting the glory and goodness of God who is in heaven back into the created order. Now that idea of the function of humanity is tied up with a key word in this passage that's repeated twice. It's tied up with this idea that human beings are made in the image of God. Now in the Bible, uh, this word is, appears in Hebrew and in Greek in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the word image in Hebrew is selim, and in Greek it's a cone. And a cone at first might not sound familiar, but when you look at the word icon, you can see that that's where we get that word. So God creates images, icons, and he puts them in the created order. Now already we have to do some unpacking because when modern people hear the word icon, you're, you're probably, you could be possibly thinking about celebrities or American Idol, like we think about icons who are famous and have influence. But not, that's not the sense in which I mean it. Human beings are the image or the icon in the sense that an icon is a symbolic representative. It's a symbolic representative of something much larger than itself. And again, the idea is that when you see a human, God's intent was that they were to reflect the wise rule of him who is in heaven. And we reflect that glory and goodness back to the created order. Now, that's still a little bit difficult for us, but one of the ways we still do stuff like this in the modern world is with logos. So a, a logo uh, is a symbolic representation of a company or an organization, and it's supposed to embody the, visions and val- the vision and value of that. So when you see the logo, you're not gonna know everything about that company, but you're gonna see sort of a compressed version of the vision and values of the entity. So here's a few examples of how this works. Um, This is the Pittsburgh Zoo and PPG Aquarium, and there's a logo. And that is supposed to embody sort of the vision, the values, and what's important about that zoo. And the thing with logos is at first you see something, but oftentimes there's, there's a lot more there to unpack, right? So the first thing you see is a tree, but then you look a little deeper or longer, and what else do you see? You see some birds, you see 
gorilla, the lion. And so this logo is kind of embodying what this zoo is all about. Here's another one. The Tour de France. What's the Tour de France about? Cycling. Very enthusiastic cyclists here among us today. Okay, and and do you see how it's doing this? It's kind of hidden. Some of you are very confident, yeah? Some of you are pretending like you see it. You know what I'm talking about where you pretend like, yeah. This is the same type of person. You know those games that you play where... um, Yes, yeah, see, see the extra chatters because the people who said they knew is, are now having explained to them by their loved one. Um, but it's the same type of person. You know, playing one of those games where you have to like guess a word or something and then the time runs out and it's revealed. You go, oh, I was just about to say that. No, you weren't. You didn't know it. Okay, so there, you see the, the dude riding the bike. Okay, here's another one. Sony Vio. The engineers may get this. The tech people may get this. Uh, but there's an analog symbol, and then it's followed by a one and a zero for the binary code, and it's sort of this idea of bringing together the analog and the digital world. Okay, that one's a little bit harder. What about this one? FedEx. Do you see it? Some of you are fast. I'm impressed. There's an arrow between the E and the X. It's like, we're going to get your package there on time. We got direction. We're going. Baskin-Robbins. You see what's hidden there? 31 flavors, right? Because Baskin-Robbins is supposed to have 31 flavors. But you know, sometimes you go, and they're out of some things. And then you declare out loud to the manager that the whole establishment is a house of lies. It says 31. You have 27, sir. Most famous one, probably, Amazon. What's there? Uh, Amazon has everything from A to Z, and when you buy our stuff that you don't need, we're going to give you a smile. (laughs) Amazon, hit hit that button. Prime next day, you're going to put on a smile. A to Z, we got everything. So you see the idea is the logos are meant to embody kind of the vision, values, and characteristics of the thing that they're standing in place for. Human beings, likewise, are the image of God. We were supposed to be the icon. So when you saw a human and you saw them exercising their rule, they would be good managers of creation. They would would be about order and goodness and human flourishing. But you know, if you're familiar with the biblical narrative, that, that doesn't last long. Like human beings are given that job and that job description and function and role, but pretty soon, they don't rule and reign in a wise manner that reflects God who is in heaven. There's rebellion, and sin enters into the world. It spirals out of control, and there's chaos, and there's evil, and suffering, and then when you step back and look at human history from the big picture level, you realize like our history as a people, as humans, our story is filled with immense, immeasurable suffering, wrongdoing, wickedness, evil, And so, God looks down, and the question is, what will he do about this? Like, he created a good world, a world for human flourishing, gave his people rules and commands and taught them how to live, and they reject that. So what is God going to do about that? Is he just going to say, too bad, I'm out of here. I'm going to go start another side project. This one didn't turn out the way I wanted. Now, the answer to what will God do is 
bound up with the central claim of Christianity and at the heart of the Christmas message? The answer is that God himself, the infinite one, would enter into creation himself in the person of the son, Jesus. God would be wrapped in humanity, wrapped in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, when Jesus does this, some of the first Christians had a number of different ways they talked about this, but one of the ways they talked about it was that Jesus Christ was the image of the invisible God. This is Paul writing in Colossians. Paul was a leader in the early church. He says, what we see when we see Jesus, we are actually seeing the perfect image of God. The word for image here is the Greek word echon. That's that icon again. Paul was claiming that when you see Jesus, you are seeing the perfect representation of who God is. So if you want to know what God is like, you look to the perfect image. And theologically, the reason why Jesus is the perfect image because he is God himself wrapped in humanity. Again, that's what Christmas is all about. So do you want to know what God is like? In one sense, you don't even have to have very difficult philosophical categories to begin the discussion. In one sense, if you want to know what God is like, you look to his image, the perfect representation. You look to Jesus. So what does the perfect image and representation look like? And specifically for us today, what does that look like in the Christmas story? So briefly, looking at the Christmas story and some of the different elements, you get a glimpse into the wonder and mystery of what God is actually like. So what is he like? Let's take a look. Luke chapter two. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Caesar Augustus is the emperor of the Roman Empire. Augustus means exalted one. So you, you might be thinking, like, if God was going to enter into the world, like, where would he be born? And your first sort of gut-level reaction, if you're not trying to, like, give the right answer at church, is he's going to be born in a royal house. He's going to be born in a royal family. He, he should come as a son of Caesar so that he's the heir to the throne. That's not what he does. Luke 2, 4 through 5, it says this, And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Jesus isn't born to Caesar Augustus, he's born to Mary and Joseph. And what's up with them? Joseph is a carpenter. The Greek word the New Testament uses for carpenter is tectone. It means a builder. It doesn't have to mean carpenter in specific, it means someone who builds most likely building with stone in that region rather than wood, but it certainly could have included wood and stone. But it's con like construction. He builds things. He makes things. Which means Joseph is a hard-working man who works long hours. His hands were tough hands, and he had the calluses to prove it. He wasn't rich or wealthy. He worked hard daily to provide daily bread for his family. And Mary isn't royalty. She's a young peasant girl who's told that she's going to conceive of the Holy Spirit as a virgin. On top of that, Mary and, and Joseph are both Jewish, and specifically they're Jewish in the first century world where they are under the oppression and the boot of the Roman Empire. And this is where Jesus comes. He is born to Mary and Joseph. So what does that tell us about God? 
Remember, if you want to know what God is like, look to his image, the perfect symbolic representation. So what is God like? Well, you see in the birth narrative, he is humble, he is gentle and lowly. Jesus actually claims these things about himself in his adult ministry. He says, come to me, I'm gentle and lowly. So what is God like? God is like someone who doesn't despise the poor and he's not impressed with earthly riches. Caesar's house is not impressive to this God. There's more. Luke chapter two. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to him, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, oftentimes uh, at Christmas times, uh, it's exaggerated. The degree at which the shepherds were despised is exaggerated. It's sort of like, you know, shepherds were universally despised. They were seen as unclean and no one liked them. Uh, and there's a little bit of truth to that, but it, it's clearly exaggerated. And the one way you can know that and know that shepherds aren't universally despised is just look at the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, how are shepherds depicted? Here's one. Uh, the Lord is my... So God is compared to a shepherd. And David is the shepherd boy. And there's this rich tradition in the Old Testament about God being a shepherd, Moses being like a shepherd, David being like a shepherd. So they weren't universally despised, but they are for sure not a part of the in crowd. They are not the elite of the culture. They're not in, they're sort of on the out. They're out there in the fields, easily forgotten, sometimes considered unclean. Sometimes by some people at this time period, they're kind of untrustworthy because they're working a profession that probably should have got something different going on for themselves. So they're not universally despised, but they're easily forgotten. Nevertheless, that's who God makes an announcement to. So when Caesar had an announcement to make about some victory, some military victory, some accomplishment or the birth of a child, he would send out messengers and heralds and they would go into the heart of the city, the densely populated areas, places where the in crowd was to give the announcement to the people who mattered. But in the birth of Jesus, God makes his announcement to the people who are forgotten. So again, back to our root question, what is God like? What does the Christmas story tell us about the nature of God? God doesn't look at people and say, they're nobodies. Nobodies are somebody to him. And God brings this message, this announcement of good news to the lowly shepherds forgotten in the field. To this God, the nobodies are somebody. Matthew chapter two. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So what does, what do the wise men tell us about the image and thus tell us about God? Well, first you have to ask like, what are the wise men? And that's kind of controversial because if you grew up in church, you know some of our Bible translations and the songs we sing use different words for these guys. Sometimes they're wise men, sometimes they're magi, sometimes they're we three. You got, everyone knows that Christmas lyric. If only we would have had that one. So kings, 
Wise men, magi, what are they? Well, the New Testament uses a word in Greek, magoi, and it means it, it's communicating something like magi, wise men. These are people from, they're from far out of Jerusalem and from Israel, and they were like maybe royal advisors. They, were, they studied mysteries. They, they looked up to the stars and tried to figure out the deepest components of reality. Some consider them to be like scholars. Some consider them to be scribes, but these are people who were considered to be wise in their day, were trusted advisors, maybe even to royalty or the important people in culture. But they come from far away to behold the birth of the king. Additionally, they bring some gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we've read and heard that so much in our culture, like what did they bring on Christmas? You could just blow by that. But gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that's a big deal. These people are wealthy. Like if, I, I'm, I'm certain they didn't bring, here's a tiny speck of gold for the baby Jesus. Like, can you, you imagine getting like, oh, we brought a block of gold. Like if you get that for Christmas, someone gives you a five pound block of gold, you can share that with me um, in honor of Christmas. Okay, like this is the most expensive stuff, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So what does that tell us? It tells us that God is drawing people from far outside of Israel, Gentiles. This is a Jewish story, the birth of the Jewish king, but in the birth of the Jewish king, the Gentiles are being brought in people from far off lands. Additionally, these people are wealthy because look at the gifts they're bringing. So what what is that communicating about God? It says that this God is welcoming all people, Jew, Gentile, male, female, poor, wealthy. He's drawing them them all into himself, which means this God is good news for all people. From the people far off who look nothing like us, to the lowly in the fields. God is drawing us, drawing all people unto himself. The Christmas story is good news for all people. Now why is that important? Let's go back to where we begin. Remember all human beings are made in the image of God? Every human has innate and intrinsic value and purpose. But we as humans rebelled. We rebelled. We didn't serve God. And we've all contributed to what's wrong in the world. It's very easy in the modern world, especially, especially right now. We look at evil and suffering, what's wrong in the world, and typically our default position is to be like, yeah, we all agree, stuff's not right, and clearly if these people got their act together, then everything would fall in place. But the super like convicting, controversial, offensive message of the scriptures is that it's not just the people out there it's us, too. It's we've all contributed to this thing called sin. We all have guilty hands. And again, in the modern world, people don't like to hear that. But when you're honest with yourself, when you're honest with yourself, you know, yeah, I've contributed to this, too. Humans are an, inter- we're an interesting species. Like, when you reflect on your life, you'll realize that some of the people you most hurt in life or some of the people that you claim to most love. It's, it's, it's crazy, right? Some of the people we claim to most love are the very people we've most hurt. It's like, so, so don't tell me I, I, my hands are completely clean. I haven't contributed to this. 
And so this gets to the heart of the Christmas message. All people were made in the image of God. And although people rebelled and did their own things and contributed to the problems in the world, God has not abandoned us. He didn't start the side project and forget about us. He sent his son, the perfect image and representation. And he comes to earth in order to bring about the forgiveness of our sins. This is what the angel tells Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Jesus. In Hebrew, Jesus is Yeshua, Yeshua. And it means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is a term, it's a Hebrew word that refers to the God of Israel. In other words, the name of Jesus says Yahweh will save, Yeshua. And what is he saving humanity from? Their sins. So however controversial that message is, however much the modern person doesn't like to hear that, make no mistake about it. If you're honest with yourself, you know you've contributed to the issue. But the good news of Christmas, the good news of the central claim of Christianity is that when God looked down and saw humanity in rebellion, in defiance, not walking as they ought to, he himself came in the person of the Son, wrapped in humanity, wrapped in human flesh. Emmanuel means God with us. And when we see Jesus, we behold the perfect image, the perfect icon, the perfect representation of what God is like. And what is this God like? He's good news for all people because he's came on a mission to forgive all of his image bearers. He offers grace and forgiveness. Rather than looking down from heaven in his holiness and perfection and saying, what's wrong with you all? He says, I am going to offer a way out of this mess. Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Which gets us back to where we began with the Christmas songs. Because we didn't just play a, a game to give away hot sauce. Although we kind of did. It was part of it. The Christmas story is echoed in the Christmas songs. And sometimes we could forget how awesome these words are and these lyrics are, but every single year they are reminding you of what's most important. I know it's easy to forget that which is most important. Everything's busy. There's all kinds of things going on in the, in the Christmas season, in the holiday season. There's all this stuff left and right and you could be overwhelmed. But don't forget for a moment like why we are here. Why are we at a Christmas Eve service? What is this all about? That God himself came in Jesus, the perfect image, to reconcile us unto himself. And so when you're in the stores and you're hearing the songs and when you're um, in your house or at your family's house for Christmas and you're hearing these songs played, like listen carefully because in the middle of the noise they are telling you what is most true. Shepherds, why this jubilee? Because you shepherds have been included in the announcement. God has not forgotten the nobodies. They are somebody to him. And what is God going to do? It says, hail the incarnate deity. God himself has come. Deity referring to God. Incarnation refers to God putting on humanity. Shepherds, why are you excited? Because God himself has come. How did he come? And what does that tell us about his character and nature? He's come humbly 
and he's entered the virgin's womb. The infinite one, almighty God, is now in a young mother's womb. And why did he do all of that? So that sin and sorrow may no longer grow. And this idea is probably embodied perfectly in one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. And if you've been a Christian a long time, you've heard it a thousand times, and it may have even lost its potency, it's, it's lost its power in your life. And if you've never heard this, maybe it'll hit differently because you're hearing it for the first time. But all of this is kind of compressed. This whole narrative is compressed in one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the perfect image, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So what's the one thing we are to to take away from all of this in the Christmas story? God so loved the world that he gave his son, born in a manger, executed on a cross, in order that he might draw all image bearers back to himself. And even though that might sound like kind of platitudes or just like lofty language to say on Christmas Eve, just just stop for a second and like get everything out of your mind. I know you got stuff going on. Just one of the most true things you can ever hear and one of the most powerful things to change your life is that God loves you. God loves you. There's no nobodies. You're somebody. You matter. He knows the hair on your head. He loves you. And he was born in a manger and executed on a cross to demonstrate his great love to you, to bring you back unto him and bring about the forgiveness of sins. You shall call his name Yeshua Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So as we close with songs and you go and do whatever today and tomorrow, one of the most true propositions of all reality is that God loves you. And if you want to know how much he loves you, you look to his perfect image, who was born in the manger and executed on the cross. Let's pray. Father, this Christmas Eve, we want to give you thanks for what you've done, that Jesus came for us to bring us back to you. And so I pray that as as we continue this evening and tomorrow comes, that that which is most important would be that which is at the front of our minds that you love us. The God and maker of heaven and earth loves us. And if anyone in this room doubts that, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in their heart right now. And if someone has never believed that truth their entire life, they're not a follower of you, they're not a Christian, I pray that, yeah, even on Christmas Eve, that your spirit would work and bring a change in their lives. Demonstrate them to them by the power of your spirit your great love. You are worthy of all praise and honor and glory, and we give you thanks this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray.